1: And today's guest is Daniel Goldhaber. Hello, Daniel.
2: Hi, how's it going?
1: It's good, it's good. Do you want to tell the people of Britflix Podcast where you are at the moment, where we're talking to you?
2: I am in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in my friend's apartment, uh, Skyping in. Um, we just had our New York theatrical premiere for the movie at the uh, Alamo Draft House here, and um, I'm hanging out for a couple of days before going to Japan for a little bit of a break after the release.
1: So which you should probably say what the title of the movie is.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that they can, they can just guess from context clues. <laughs> um, it's, no, the, the movie is called CAM, C-A-M. Uh, it is a psychological thriller set in the world of webcam pornography. Um, it was produced by Blumhouse. Well, it was, it was uh, essentially is distributed by Blumhouse and Netflix. Um, it was produced by a company called Divide and Conquer um and uh yeah you can see it on netflix now worldwide
1: and you co-wrote this with uh, a, a a female screenwriter called Issa matze
2: i actually i i i wrote the story with her with uh, our creative producer isabel link levy but Issa isa wrote the script solo i think where people get a little confused is we we share an authorship credit on the film so the film is a a film by Issa matze and daniel goldhaber but, but that's because, and, and, and we can kind of get into this more as we talk about the, the process behind the making of the film. But, but ultimately it was that, you know, we developed the film together and, you know, I was always directing it, but it was, it was the kind of thing, and then she was always writing it. But as we were developing it, you know, we were having conversations in the writing process that were going far beyond the screenwriting and we're going into the casting and the the how are we going to shoot this? How are we going to talk about this? What kind of money do we want? Um, it was really that when we developed the film together, we developed a vision for the film together. And I was kind of responsible for doing the craft of directing. She was responsible for doing the craft of writing. But in terms of the envisioning of the project that was shared. Um, and I can again get into some more of of. Uh, well, I was going what, to say, let's, so let's, just, yeah. let's
1: put put a place marker down because when we when I sort of did the preamble with you before we started recording, you said you. I said that one of the things I like to do on the podcast is talk about the process of, of, of filmmaking and, and creating. And you said that there was something you wanted to say about, about process itself. So do you want to just, just, is, is this, is Yeah, a we good can time just to- jump
2: in. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that, that in general, so, so my background, I went to Harvard um, and they have a very, very, very small film program there uh, called visual and environmental studies. Mm-hmm. And, no, so my graduating thesis seminar was seven kids. Um, and, and the program is really is, is, is very kind of, it's predominantly a documentary and an experimental film program. Mm-hmm. Um, their narrative, their narrative thing pro, you know, is, is, is they have one visiting narrative filmmaking professor a year. That's it. Um, now that said, that visiting narrative filmmaking professor has been, you know, Chantal Ackerman and Lodge Kerrigan and Hal Hartley and Guy wow. Madden just there. Uh, you know, I studied with Michael Almerida um and a French filmmaker named Philippe Grandview, um, who is my thesis advisor, who's who I will refer to several times in, in talking about process and and kind of filmmaking. Uh Philippe was was a real influence on not only me, but also the editor of the film, Dan Garber uh who is who is was really instrumental in making this movie and in, in conceptualizing it and uh and Isabel Link Levy, our creative producer and and kind of you know helped us develop the story of the film uh was also in that department with me. So, you know, the the fundamental exercise as a part of that department um is is the second semester of your first year, the entire class directs a documentary film by committee. Um there's no director. And what you have to learn is how to communicate your ideas in cinema, how to communicate, oh, this is what an image is, this is what it's doing. And then you have to learn to defend your ideas without ever being able to fall back on, well, I'm the director and what I say goes. Um, and it, it's an immensely useful exercise. And And the other thing that kind of <clears> – <throat> one of the things that does is it immediately – I left that class really – feeling like authorship in film was way more complicated. And that having had this experience of making a film truly as a collective, I'm like, well, directors in many ways do this one thing, but they're not necessarily the author of their film automatically. And one of the other things that kind of came out of my experiences at Harvard is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Sensory Ethnography Lab, but the Sensory Ethnography Lab is it, 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 it was a documentary um, movement that has kind of, you know, uh, drifted a little bit since it originally kind of started. But my interpretation of the work is that it comes out of a legacy of ethnography film and people, you know, white Europeans going to Peru and saying, I'm going to make an ethnographic film about this indigenous yeah. culture and I'm going to present a an objective viewpoint on what it is and um, And of course, the act of turning on a camera and pointing it at something is subjective. And the idea behind sensory ethnography is, well, let's embrace that. And let's say that, well, there's one thing we can be objective to. It's our sensory experience of a place. This is what I went here. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what I felt. And so I really, I really also took that to heart and ultimately, you know that's some just background on me. And I think that, you know, some of my education it will kind of lead into the overall, I think different kind of process that went into the film, but Issa and sorry that I'm, I'm really going on for it. No, second no, it's fine. It's
1: fine. It's fascinating. Uh-huh. No, carry on.
2: Yeah, I, so Isa, the, the writer of the film was my high school girlfriend. Uh, we worked together, you know, on a bunch of creative projects when we were kids went to different colleges, she went to UC Berkeley, studied avant-garde and Russian futurism, and she went on to have a number of careers before she ultimately decided to become a professional cam girl. She'd always had a fascination with sex work, it had always been Mm -hmm. something that she was interested in trying. Um, And when she found camming, uh, she found something that she was not only really good at, but that she really enjoyed and that she found to be like a really productive creative outlet for herself. I was one of the first people who knew about that and um, she kept trying to get me to watch her show and I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then I was back in Boulder, Colorado, where we're both from, and she was like, hey, I really want to shoot some really cinematic pornography. Are you interested in making it for me? And I was like, that sounds like a really cool exercise. And so I went on to, you know, do this this porn shoot with her and and it really changed my relationship to porn because i had never really been exposed to this idea of i think you know i wasn't i was by no means anti-sex worker but i hadn't really been exposed firsthand to 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 seeing the experience of a sex worker as a working professional as somebody who was a creative professional as somebody who had a tremendous amount of agency in what they were doing and that was a really fascinating idea and so it also you know making a porn, all of a sudden you start thinking about the craftsmanship of pornography, the ethics of porn making, the ethics of editing in porn, Um, you know, how you're kind of using the tools and tricks of a film to create what you're selling to an audience is essentially an authentic sexual moment. Um, and I find that I found that really, really, really fascinating. And so we knew there was a movie there. And at first we were thinking, ah, oh, maybe we'll do a documentary about this because these ideas are really important. But again, you know, the contract a doc has with its audience is very similar to the contract that a porn has with its audience, which is that I'm giving you this real moment, but it's from the outside in. And and that's especially difficult when you're talking about sex work, when you're talking about a, an area of culture that is almost always work sex workers are either kind of, you know, it's, it's either super glamorous or they're, or they're victims. Mm. Um, and we really wanted to bring the audience inside of a sex worker's psychology. So when we kind of realized there were all those problems with the piece, we were like, um, eh, uh, maybe that's, that's not what's here right now. Okay. okay. So, so, so the,
1: so the idea of making a well, well shot porn, film didn't we,
2: happen no, we, did, we did porn this was after the porn we okay, were like so, well, just, 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 sorry yeah, yeah, yeah i was just gonna
1: say so let me let me just go over because um i've got the name of the writer now but the, the, the book pornocopia in that book he but you know he, he talks a lot about what porn is what porn isn't and essentially he, he he boils it down to the fact that you know porn is just an aid to masturbation or did you discover it was more than that through the process of making it
2: it was more than just a fascination or
1: no no, no no, it was more no, not fascination no it's it's the idea that porn is just an aid to masturbation. It's not art
2: no i I very, very much disagree. I think that so much of what we consider to be art is in fact falls into the genre of pornography. I think okay. you know, I often point to the Transformers movies. As porn in so many ways, those movies are so extraordinarily pornographic as in in kind of in kind of all all capacities. I love porn. I think that porn is incredibly artful. I think that porn is also, you know, just because you're not necessarily masturbating to something doesn't mean that you're not getting off on something. And I think that that also, you know, I have absolutely masturbated to Hollywood films, you know, I, I think that I think that we 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 have a very narrow designation of what technically qualifies as pornographic and it's kind of arbitrary, mm. um, you know, and and it, it's because of the way that we try to censor and hide the explicit act of sexuality. Mm. But frequently what porn is, is it simply, you know, explicit depictions of sex. We think of it, yes. but that is not necessarily what gets somebody off. Um, and I think that, that at the end of the day, the craft of porn is the craft of making something where maybe the intention is to get somebody off. But how is that different from crafting a horror movie where you're simply trying to scare somebody? Why is one thing somehow seen as inherently different or less than the other? Um, why is creating work that is sexually to people is shameful?
1: No well well I guess I mean you know from 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 porn I've seen there's not they're not, they're not trying to establish empathy with anybody uh, Well
2: that's because there's a lot of bad porn out there but okay. I've seen a lot of <laughs> I've seen a, you know like like There's there's also a lot of movies that aren't actively trying to establish empathy with their main characters and that, you know, simply exist as forms of exploitation. Again, get us off in a particular kind of that's why I use, you know, there's great horror films. There's also very, very bad, very exploitative horror films, maybe both scary, but but, you know, you can have ethical porn. You can create porn that is good, that does establish empathy, you know, um. I, I've seen I've seen, you know, a lot of porn that I think me two different kinds of sexuality and sexual expression that I might not have been exposed to otherwise. And, um, and it's opened me up to other parts of myself sexually. You know, I'm bisexual. And in all honesty, one of the ways that I've actually been able to explore my bisexuality is by watching gay porn.
1: Okay.
2: Because I'm, I, I've been afraid to engage in it in person. So I think that mm-hmm. that. That porn can actually be uh, an incredibly important thing, and again, we we expect all these other things from our visual images, but when it comes to pornography, we say, well, it doesn't have to be good, and I don't think that that's true. Mm. Um, and and so these were the conversations I was having with Issa though, and and I think that you know the views I hold now are, and and this is kind of this is where I will ultimately land with with the process question. These are views that. Well, I kind of had I had no ability to articulate before starting to work on this project. And when I'm saying, you know, I'm bisexual, that was something that I hadn't even been able to fully admit to myself until after working on this project. So, you know, I I think that that ultimately what ended up happening is we decided that, you know, a documentary. So We we did the pornography. We wanted to do a documentary. We (laughs) couldn't find a way into a doc. We tabled the project for a year. I kind of came up with the loose concept of what if we did a film in this world? I pitched it to Issa. She was excited about it. And from that moment forward, we kind of built the movie together. And Issa came into this as a writer, but not as a screenwriter. She was a writer with a tremendous amount of life experience and political insight into how to tell a story from a sex workers point of view, but wasn't wasn't at that point in time a trained screenwriter. And so we we kind of, you know, it was a very organic development process where, you know, know, she was basically learning how to write a script while writing a script, um, which was really cool. And it resulted in a script and a film that was not coming from a filmmaker's perspective, but was coming from this 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 kind of perspective, which was really amazing. And ultimately, to get back to this co-authorship question, we recognized that we think of authorship as a monologue, Mm. really a white man. And we have a very narrow view of that. And it's kind of shocking to me because we expect so much kind of experimental, we embrace so much experimental stuff in filmmaking. Uh, experimental form, politics, narrative, aesthetic. Um, but we don't really ask our films to have experimental process. Um, and we don't really discuss that much critically when in fact, like process dictates what the film is. And we were having this conversation before the, the film started that, you know, you were saying that you, you know, some of your interviewing started interviewing conceptual artists. But I think that film to me, there's there's two quotes that summarizes my approach. Mm. And one is Good saying um, every every film is a documentary of its own creation <laughs> no, no, no. and I think that that is 100% true in my experience in ways that you don't even know mm. when you're doing it and that maybe you can't even recognize until afterwards but ultimately a film is a collective of people existing together for a limited period of time and then capturing it and And even if it's a narrative I think that you can always tell Um
1: and can uh, uh. So I just stop you there? So in a way, it sounds like you're, because I think, I think of authorship as being the person, you know, the way we look at it, it's like the person who sticks around and says, I did that, when in fact, obviously involved, uh, certainly in film, m- more, more so than a lot of, a lot of uh, creative, um, creative uh, outlets, more often than not, has got to have involved a lot more other people. To make it to make whatever that person is sticking their hand up for. And obviously or tier theory, this idea of the of the author taking ownership of the whole project and everyone else is kind of second. Is are you are you sort of seeing a redundancy in all that in the process that you've enjoyed and had, you know, success out of working with
2: Issa? Um I think that the thing is is that auteur theory has consumed the way we think of film authorship. It's not only my belief that a lot of directors claim authorship when it isn't due to them, but it's my belief that in this film, when in all of our public facing statements, all of our press notes, we talk about the two of us, Hmm. me as director is given that credit automatically. Yeah. Um, And, and that's really frustrating. And ultimately, you know, this is a film that is not a monologue. It's a dialogue between us. It is a process of me and Issa sorting through these ideas together and saying, hey, listen into this conversation that we've been having. And I think it's 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 kind of bananas to me that we don't expect more films to be that when it's such a collective medium, Um, that it's a medium that 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 requires a collective effort. And yet we we so frequently attribute the authorship to a singular person automatically. And I think that that we also forget that that auteur theory grew out of a bunch of filmmakers noticing a bunch of individuals essentially finding ways to express themselves inside of the Hollywood studio system and saying. Maybe there is a way towards self-expression inside of an oppressive regime. But we've forgotten that that was the motivation and instead kind of just start granting that to people automatically.
1: Yeah, it's, 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 I never thought of that. It's a real, a real semantic development, isn't it, in the sense of it what is. the word means today as to what it was trying to say it meant. Because uh, it, it doesn't represent resistance at all now, does it? Resistance to nothing. No. It, it means I'm a big head, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it,
2: and it and it means and it means I have a unique voice. It means that my film is my own. And I think Cam has an incredibly unique voice, but mm. that doesn't necessarily need a source from a single person. Well, and, can, 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 like, like,
1: talking about yeah. then you, you you working with Issa then developing that screenplay. Now, the, now you said you're developing with someone who hasn't written a screenplay, but you're developing it with somebody who has a, a fairly you well, not fairly an absolute authentic view on what it's like to be a cam girl having done it, but also yeah. then when you take, obviously, we, one of the things about any kind of storytelling is what's what happened in real life is never is not always dramatic, is it? So, how did you two go on the journey of taking what was an authentic experience and, and obviously very acute understanding and then evolving that into something that's that, that becomes dramatic for an audience to then? consume after the fact
2: lots of conversation i mean and again lots of me asking isa about her experiences as a cam girl learning about that and then saying oh this thing was sticky to me in terms of we're trying to show an audience uh, uh, a sex worker with agency a sex mm. worker out of self-desire and and i'm trying to understand where that comes from for isa and she's explaining it to me, and I'm saying, oh, that thing you said, that made sense to me. That changed my, my view on this. Let's stick it in the movie. And that goes beyond just ideas of sex work and mm. also has a tremendous amount to do with performative femininity, with existing sexually in our society as a woman. You know, part of my impetus for wanting to make this film was recognizing that it came at a time in my life, I recognized that I had a lot of really problematic relationships with women in my life and problematic behaviors with women in my life that I wanted to correct and where I wanted to educate myself. And well, you, well you, came,
1: were be- you, you, you were behaving problematically, you
2: mean? Uh, ways that I was like, the, there are ways that I've been taught to think about women and act towards women Go that on. I have been socialized that I want to unsocialize in myself. Mm -hmm. And, and that, you know, a lot of that process and rewiring of myself came through conversations with Issa about this film and, and actively educating and challenging my own, my own sense of self. And again, that ended up having an impact on, the way that I engaged with my own sense of performed masculinity, you know, one of the things that was really important in the film was that I cam. Uh, it was something Issa really wanted from me, was for me to cam. Not because I would walk out knowing what it's like to be a cam girl or a sex worker, but that I might have more of an empathetic connection to the vulnerability of being online in that way and then the vulnerability of trying to perform your gender for someone for money. So you, and, you,
1: you did you did a webcam? I
2: cammed for a week, yeah, like wow. full, full the full Monty, uh, uh, and I'm very bad at it. But you know, people just kept trying to get me to do stuff for free, which you know I kind of went back to Isa with, and she was like, "Well, welcome to being a sex worker, and welcome to being a woman," and and that was a really eye opening experience for me. And I, I sometimes point to it in particular, but in general, it was the entire. Experience of working on this film and again recognizing how pervasive performative gender is when we think of our sense of self Mm. and 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 how much that had how much cognitive dissonance I had with performing male and that I've always had. But when you're a young kid in this world. Uh, other men try to violently enforce that upon you if you're kind of a you know more effeminate emotional mm. kid, and and that can really fuck you up, and it can make you want to behave extra you know masculinely in, in in an effort to protect yourself. Um and yeah, so so I'm I am fascinated, fascinated that you that you managed I mean
1: to get all this from someone who. Who you're now working with, but you've known since you were teenagers. So yeah. this is this isn't like you've you've found someone who's given you the gateway to this self-liberalisation. You've you've always known her, as it were, for, since you were young. But but it took this project for you to to find out this new in yourself.
2: Well, I think that we only like I, I, I don't know if it would have worked with anybody who I didn't know as well on, both, on, on both sides. I think that you know, it was a tremendously intimate collaboration where we were sharing kind of, we were both putting everything on the line for the film and for each other. And it was a process of, of sorting through everything and saying what needs to go in the film. Um, because again, you know, I'm saying actively, like I don't understand what it's like to exist in this world yeah. as a woman. Um and then Issa's explaining that to me as a as a as a as a man who's been socialized in this mm. in this culture, and then we're saying, Okay, well, we gotta put that in the movie. And and vice versa, you know, like there was a lot of tinker that I put myself into, and a lot of Barney that I, I put myself into. And there would be moments talking about those characters where Issa would say, Well, Tinker needs to do this, and I would be like, Well, no, uh, when you're when you're unhealthily obsessed with a woman and you've created your own kind of fantasy version of you in your, her head, you would never do that. You would do this instead. Um, and, and then she would be like, oh, you know what? I had no idea that men did that. Um, do you know, this is what they sound... I mean, it, it was writ large in the film, but it,
1: um, I don't know if you're familiar with... Uh, there's a, prof, a professor who's leading the campaign against sex robots called Kathleen Richardson. Um, I have I've
2: not heard of this.
1: She was She was talking on a podcast called pop psych uh, Robo psych pop psych. Robo psych which is about the idea of the ethics and morals of artificial intelligence as opposed to the computer bits, which you know they 're all magical, but you know the idea of what effect will it have on the human the human race if we introduce yeah. it and, she, and like i say she 's leading the campaign against um, against uh, sex, the idea of sex robots, which obviously has made lots of news in recent, in recent, certainly in recent, in recent months for, for being somehow revelatory and it's going to save women because violent men can have sex with robots and stuff. But she, but she, she kind of coined it, and, and it's sort of in the characters of Barney and Tinker to a certain degree. You've got this idea of access and, the trans, and making sex trans, transactional as opposed to consensual, i.e. I pay, I get. Which is if you then reduce it down to a, a human like robot that you can have sex with. And sex is literally you switch it on, you have sex, you switch it off, you've stopped having sex. So her theory is that instead of creating a release for men who are problematic, you're actually helping to create more despair and lose more hope in the world <laughs> as a result of well, of taking that idea of consensual sex away.
2: I think that I think that at the same time, one of the things I mean The cause of sexual violence is we love blaming porn for sexual violence Mm. and not blaming ourselves as a society and as a culture for sexual violence. We love putting that responsibility on porn as if for some reason, showing people images of sexuality as it exists and often as it doesn't exist. I think, it's,
1: I think it's more the transactional, I mean, I think that there's the difference between porn and money changing hands all the time in terms of what you get out of sex, even if it's just your predilection for whatever
2: you might get a webcam, webcam girl to do or not do. It's- I mean, yes, but I think that, you know, why don't we then say, well, we really shouldn't, we really shouldn't allow people to go out and eat at restaurants because if they go out to eat too much at restaurants, they're not going to ever cook for themselves they're going to become too habituated to eating eating out and uh, we'll lose the a, ability to cook. That's a great argument. <laughs> you know, I, I think yeah, that yeah, we yeah. we really bend over backwards to rationalize ourselves into a place where where we think of somehow sex and prostitution. Food is as important to us as sex, um, but McDonald's is fine. So, and like, yeah, McDonald's is, is problematic. And I'm not saying that sex work is without its pitfalls that that pornography is without its pitfalls but it 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 the idea that it's somehow worse than any other form of kind of you know commercialized consumption is a flawed premise and i think that the point of this all comes from when we look at you know what are really the goals here the goals are to engender healthier sexual relationships in our society. The goal is to reduce sexual violence against all people, but specifically against sex workers. Mm. You know, sex work isn't going anywhere. The only way that you prevent that is by decriminalizing or legalizing sex work and then socially destigmatizing it. Because I do have friends in Montreal and Berlin and places where the legal status of sex work is more liberal. And yet they still have trouble getting the support they need from the police, from, you know, other, you know, other kind of uh, uh institutions because of the social stigma attached.
1: Yeah, I was gonna and, say, I mean yeah, that was, was
2: gonna right. be in danger. Yeah, I was gonna.
1: I mean, that's one of the things for for people who. I mean, should say, should say, and we'll repeat at the end. Uh, you know, this film is available to see on Netflix in the UK now. Um, but watching the film, you you definitely you, between you, you've managed to concoct a story that that on on the one hand is not stigmatizing any anyone anyone to do with the sex work, and obviously, um, uh, Madeline Brewer's character uh, Alice is. Um, is clearly want, wanting to do it and in charge of herself and what she's doing. The problem that the film shows is society at large. It's not the problem. Isn't webcaming. and that's and that's kind of a that, that that's a, I guess that's a positive in terms of what you're talking about, isn't it? Is that the problem is is wider
2: society, not not webcams. It, exactly. Well, and, and that and that. So there's two things here. Mm-hmm. This is a movie about digital identity. This is a movie about somebody who loses control of their digital ident- Identity. The story is as scary if she is a Twitch streamer or a YouTuber or an Instagrammer or a podcaster. Uh, you know, our digital identities are fragile. We look to them to be more real than ourselves, these digital avatars of us. And but they're they're very, very corruptible. And we're seeing this more and more and more. Um, and ultimately, that's what the story is about. But it takes place in the work in the world of. Webcamming and more broadly, you know, in the world of sex work, one of the rules we we, we set for ourselves early on was that we couldn't derive the negative stakes of the film from the character's decision to be a sex worker. The negative stakes of the film are derived from her loss of agency over herself because of, you know. This, this kind of digital fracturing that happens to her. And beyond that, the bad things that happen to her all come from, you know, a lot of, you know, different social stigmas attached to sex work or from lack of institutional support because she's a sex worker. Um, and we really, really wanted to demonstrate that, yeah, again, in her world, she has agency. She is she loves what she does. She sees herself as an empowered creative professional, um, and it's every yeah. It's everybody around her that is the problem, and yep. that's I think uh,
1: yeah. With, with 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 the the sense that you you were both being as open as people can be about about what you're writing about because of the because you know by by the nature of the subject you were tackling, and for you know for you as a co co author of this work to go to the trouble of. Of, of experiencing it for yourself first and for a week. What, that that took people, and certainly me thinking about how I might write a screenplay, that seems like a terrifying ordeal um, to, to, <laughs> to get inside out to write a screenplay. But, but you know, you, you've, you've done that, and that, that, that's quite, you know, it's kind of hats off to you from my side of the fence uh, looking in. Um, but when the two of you are writing them, what became, what became the difficult parts of writing? You know, what were the storytelling challenges for you two in terms of creating this, or because obviously you've got the the openness is there and the willingness to tackle mm. and 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 drawing sort of almost like dogmatic lines, like you say to say like we're not going to make her a victim of what she does. We're going to make the, the 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 evil in this film be something that's about that's not going to be a critique of her, but more of mm-hmm. a kind of you know. Because I think like what you're saying is with this idea of our digital identities being fragile, if you and I started using. Uh, Mickey Mouse's logo on our clothing range that we launch tomorrow. Someone would tell us tomorrow that you can't do it or else we're going to charge you millions of pounds in legal things and whatever, wouldn't they? But obviously in this kind of mini version, which is someone's identity is kind of taken by the glitch in the system, whatever it is. um, Nobody gives a damn, do they?
2: (laughs) No. And, you know, but again, I think that, that, that there are so many instances that I can point to in, in, uh, digital theft or, you know, bad things happening to people online that are objectively horrible where there is absolutely no institutional support from anybody. Um, so I don't think that, that it's beyond comprehension that that would happen. And again, you know, if your friend walked up to you one day and was like, look at this. So I lost control of my Facebook account hmm. and there's this. Person that looks exactly like me that's posting things I would never post from all over the world, and everybody loves them more than me, and I can't get into my account, and that's not me. You would be like, "That's f- f- fucked up. You should talk to Facebook about that." Yeah, and then you would move on with your life. You know, and 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 like, what would what can you do? There's nothing you can do in that situation. Um, so and yeah. But but to to, to go on in terms of what were the narrative challenges here, I think that that ultimately there's a lot of landmines in genre films that you can run into. And it was really, really hard to find a movie that worked for us narratively that fit these politics and these ideas. And um, it it took a long time to develop that. There's there's not a lot of things I can easily point to. I can also just say that, you know, it was both Ethan and Mai's first film. And at the end of the day, while we were trying to do something that I think a lot of really ambitious ideas and we wanted to make a movie that was also really fun to watch. We were also learning how to make a movie at the exact same time. I think that there's a lot of things that took us a long time to figure out on this, that would be legitimately a lot easier on the next one, just because of a, a lot more experience that we've gained.
1: And just to, just to go, kind of go full circle on where we start the conversation, did your experience of that kind of communal filmmaking that you did in that, 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 one, that one semester, did that serve as good grounding then for what you were doing in this film?
2: It was it was it was critical. I don't know if I if I would have even been able to conceptualize the idea of shared authorship without it. And that idea of shared authorship is the reason that the movie exists. Um, you know, because yes, I I was always going to be the director of the film, and so was always going to be the writer of the film. But I don't think that there's a there isn't a successful version of this film that exists without the very intense nature of our collaboration and. The shared ownership over the film and the ability for both of us to kind of share that ownership. And, and, you know, outside of the writing process, that trickled down to the shooting process and the editing process, but specifically the shooting process, it was really critical in how we crewed up, how we hired, the kinds of even questions that you ask, you know, if you're, if you're, um, if you're hiring people to be on your crew and you're interviewing them, um, you know, are you having active conversations about their feelings about the representation of women and sex works in the movie? I think a lot of filmmakers, that's not the case. And then you get a movie from a certain kind of perspective. But we really wanted everybody on the film to be as excited about the narrative and the genre elements and the aesthetic possibilities as they were about the politics. And they were. And so ultimately that built a very particular kind of set. Because again, as a director, most of your job is hiring people. And in that, you're, 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 you're building a community with a very, very specific purpose. And I think that when it also comes to process, the thing that defines process is intention. And the thing that defines the intention of this film was the conversations I was having with Issa. But another thing is, you know, for instance, from a process standpoint, we want to tell a story about a sex worker who has agency. How do you how do you make that happen? How do you direct that performance in an actor? Well, one of the fundamental things that we did was, you know, uh, legally for our contract with Maddie Brewer, the mm. lead actor of the film, who is incredible in this. Um, and I think her performance is astounding um, for so many reasons. Um, but legally, we had to have a nudity writer with her. And a nudity writer is where you have gone out, you have outlined every single piece of nudity that will be in the film. Um, body part by body part and it's a it's a really painful and exacting process and ultimately what happens on many many films is that you will have a nudity writer and on the day there may be a miscommunication or the shot isn't what the actress thought it was or the piece of clothing is a little bit skimpy or the intention is not as it was presented to them but they've signed it and then that nudity writer is enforced And it often you can kind of feel it in actors. You can see that tension. You can see that like, oh, I don't want to be in this right now. And it it's incredibly male gazy. And we had to avoid the male gaze in this film because we had, you know, this is a movie from Alice's perspective. And we had to avoid that discomfort. And not only for the ethical reasons of that's a horrible thing to do to another person, but because, you know, it 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 would also have been so counter to the film itself, and I think that this is the other thing: is that you know this is why the politics of the film were so critical, is because they were the content of the film, and they're also my personal beliefs as a person, you know, morally of how a film should be made, and I think that films are reflections of that.
1: So so you you're, you're saying that, that ordinarily and and even your film there is a contract on top of the contract, as it were, to do with nudity.
2: Or, yes. And in this case, we had to do a nudity writer, and the nudity writer was a catch all of this is as much as anything is going to be in any given scene. But we made an agreement with Maddie that on the day it was up to her, that on the day we were not going to enforce the nudity writer, We were just doing it because we had to do it. Um, to make the lawyers and the agents and the Screen Actors Guild happy, um, but that it was going to be up to her. And as a result, there are scenes in the movie where Maddie came to set and said, you know, I think the nudity in this scene is misplaced. And there was one scene in particular, the climax of the film had been written as when she strips, she gets completely naked. And Ethan and I had some big high-minded ideas of how it was her reclaiming her body and the images of her taking off all of her clothes were linked to rebirth and you know, on the day, Maddie was like, that's very smart of you guys, and I get the intelligence behind that, and I see all of the symbolism, but it's not where the character is coming from, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be wrong. I can't play it. And we were like, okay, you're right. You know this better. And she was 100% right. It would have tanked the scene completely. It wouldn't have felt anything, you know, and maybe there's a version of the film that's different, but it's not the version that Maddie was in. Mm. And there were other scenes in the film where she came on set and she was like, I need to be completely nude in this scene. And we had to go amend the nudity rider to to, to, to include that. And so ultimately, I think that when you feel – I've had female – I've had critics, but specifically female critics, talk to me and be like, there's very little sexual content in this film. And I'm like, there's a two and a half minute scene in this film where the main character completely naked rides a sex machine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and But it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel sexual because it doesn't engage with the way that we think about, oh, that's a sexy scene in a movie. There's a tremendous amount of nudity in the film, but you don't feel it. And that's because the Vibratron scene is directed like an action sequence. It's directed like a physical endurance test.
1: Um, and, yeah, and also, yeah, the motivation to do it has got very little to do with sex, even though obviously the end user is getting the, totally. the, the sex of it. It's I mean, that was the, that. I must admit, that was a big reveal for me of this of, of what webcamming is. Was it's in the same way that you might get a thrill from a dozen likes on a Facebook post or a dozen retweets on a tweet. The idea of reaching top fifty or top ten of a webcamming chart is like the is like the ultimate kind of sales incentive tool, isn't it? In terms of what you know, each individual. You know, there's always going to be, in a way, it's like, it's like um, I remember talking to someone who worked at an aggressive sales company, and it was basically no matter how good you were, if you were bottom, you got fired. You know, so yeah. ultimately in this cam world, if there's 100 cam girls online, somebody is 100, aren't they? And somebody's one. And number one is getting the most viewers and arguably the most money. And 100 and is yeah. getting the least, so to speak. So, therefore, by the algorithms of the way the thing works, I'm guessing. They get less attention as well. It's like you know, popularity begets popularity, so there's an incentive to be popular, <laughs> for want of a better expression.
2: And 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 you know, I think that the way that we were trying to conceptualize the representation of the site was a representation of social media platforms, mm. which which kind of like are and and the representation of Lola ultimately, where you know, Twitter and Facebook, which kind of curate. Our knowledge and our communication are run by artificially intelligent algorithms that even the people who invented them no longer understand. And their their explicit goal is to keep you on the platform for as long as possible. And, you know, that is what's governing our global conversation right now and and our sense of self and our sense of identity. and. I think that, you know, that's what you see with Alice as well um, is, you know, she's existing on a platform that is funneling her into a very particular set of motivations and behavioral patterns um, where she is expressing herself and excelling and making great work, but it's still inside of this structure that is deeply problematic. And it's a capitalist structure that's deeply problematic. Mm. And beyond that, you know, her data, essentially the videos that she's made, her character, has been, and this is, I guess, spoiler alert for people, if you wanna like fast forward for a minute, um, has been taken away from her and Mm -hmm. optimized via algorithm for engagement. And that's what Lola is, very, very simply. And I find it very interesting that people really wanna know what Lola is. Explain to me, who did it? How can she stop them? And I'm like, to me, it's just a reflection on the fact that we actually don't ask that questions of our tech companies. I know that Facebook and Twitter are very bad for me, and yet I log on every day. We most of us do. And we don't ask questions. We know that, you know, they led to Brexit and the election of Donald Trump and the proliferation of fake news, and yet we go, eh, what can you do? That's where I live. And that's where Alice lives, because the problem is the Internet's also great. It's super fun. We can express ourselves. We can connect across across the world. We're talking over Skype right now. Mm. It's amazing. It's an amazing platform for the proliferation of ideas. There's all these great things about it. But the business models on which it's run have messed up incentives. And we need to we need to confront that. And ultimately, Cam is what makes Alice happy. And we see that she's really good at it and she's making work at it. That's really cool. And we were trying to engage with this idea of, you know, great artist narratives and 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 looking at, you know, movies like Whiplash and Black Swan, where people kind of sacrifice everything they have for their work and saying that's what Alice is to us. She's fighting tooth and nail to get back the one thing she loves. I don't know if you've
1: seen. I mean, it's interesting because I see, since I watched the film, I I, I saw uh, not that there's any direct link, but I saw um, Steve McQueen's film *Widows*.
2: I haven't seen it yet.
1: Okay, well, this 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 is not a, this is just a, a moment rather than a particular spoiler. But there's a a Polish character in it, and she's she sort of got a kind of sugar daddy type relationship with this fella partway through the story. Where basically, it's it's all based on he pays for her time, he gets her time, he gives her luxurious things, and so on and so forth, and he he sort of confronts her with this idea of you know well, what do you want I'm giving you everything, and she just turns around she goes I want to fail on my own I want to fail because of me I want to succeed because of me, and and you go because she says because I am because I am who I am not I am not who you pay for to be with, and it, yeah. was, it was a and it felt like there was a I mean as much as what your, your I mean yours is probably more writ large in terms of a of a film that's got a, a, a very much a twenty first century message to it. Uh, and that man and a beating heart to it. There was what is a big, a big uh, you know Steve McQueen Oscar winner who's made a film now where he's got a moment of dialogue where 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 a woman is is a female a character is is basically throwing all that back in her face that that men think women want, and it's sort of really quite it's quite it's quite it feels progressive in a world where, like you say, we we're, we're seeing political shifts not represent that, but in fact. We are hopefully still moving forward, I feel.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, and I think that part of the critical thing there is part of the reasons that we are moving forward is because of the internet and because of the way the internet has torn down other gatekeepers, um, you know, that have kept some of these, this dialogue from happening and that, you know, I think that there have been really good things um,
1: here's, here's a bit of hope for you. It's the only hope I keep holding on to. A, a, a friend of mine who's a sort of, he, he's a speech writer, does lots of sort of, you know, deals with lots of big blue chip companies and stuff writing speeches. And his, his belief is, because we keep getting told this is post truth, and his belief that what we're experiencing, this kind of Brexit getting through and Trump getting through, is, is actually pre truth. This whole explosion of the internet is, is essentially the Wild West but on the internet. So it's got it's, yeah. dead, it's Deadwood basically, you know the way Deadwood portrayed the, that that final frontier. And in fact, you know Deadwood will, fought, will crumbled, and obviously civil society was born out of it. And his belief is that we will we will come out of that. And I kind of can see that there's a there's a there's you know society has always been on a trajectory. It's had dips, obviously. You know the the beginning of the 20th century had plenty, didn't it? In, in its work, it, but
2: it but and it's over. And it's some. We've always, every time we've had a new form of technology and communication, we've always had to adjudicate how to how to edit and reinforce it. And I think that the the flip side of that is as we build those standards and those systems, you know, those standards those the, the people that write the rules are usually the people in power and they usually write the rules to oppress other people. Hmm. And I think that, so on one level, the wild west of the internet is exciting. And on another level, it's terrifying. And on the most important level, I just think that we really need to make sure that we know that that we're careful about who has the power for the internet moving forward. And unfortunately that power is being given to mark zuckerberg jeff bezos and god knows who's who else you know it's 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 we're i don't think we're necessarily putting the ability of figuring out how to you know look at twitter look at who twitter bans look at who twitter doesn't ban
1: you know and and then that's and that's kind of and it's 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 And and people listening might not think we're talking about your film, but actually a lot of what your film is about is about that idea that we give up so much to behemoths now that we do It's like second nature, isn't it? We tick a box, yes, I agree. Tick a box, yes, I agree. And then it's all very well when everything's going well. It's a bit like that thing where people always warn you, you know, don't go to business with friends, you know, or if you do, draw a contract up about what to do if it all goes to shit. And everyone goes, oh, no, but we're best friends. and It'll never go wrong. And then it goes wrong. And then, you know, obviously nothing can be done. You're, all, you're completely stuck and everybody gets ripped off. And in the same way, we give away stuff all the time because it's easy just to click yes and yes and yes. And, uh, and, and, and Alice's character has, got, has, done, has played everything by the rules. She's become a brilliant webcam girl. She's popular. She's moving up the charts. And then this thing happens. And then not only is institution, you know, the police and everything, which kind of they're the things you expect, but the people she's been paying a subscription to, the people that she trusted her data to and everything, don't give a shit because there's thousands of others doing okay. So her one phone call, none of, none of, these, none of these systems are, are created to, to deal with problems. They're only here to create revenue and content, aren't they, I
2: think? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, again, that's, that's specifically the case with Twitter. It's like, why did they wait so long to ban? Again, I don't know how known he is in, in, in the UK, but this guy, Alex Jones. I was going to was, I
1: was use him as an example. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's evidence yeah. to me that the goalposts may be our movie.
2: Well, a little bit, but the problem is, is that for every Alex Jones that is banned, how many people aren't banned? That we don't, you know, aren't as public, aren't quite as aggressive. I mean, Facebook all but admitted it recently, you know, Facebook said like, well, yeah, we kind of recognize that a lot of um, a lot of more extreme or quote unquote extreme content tracks better and is, you know, uh, by extension, more addictive, um, which is essentially their way of saying that, you know, they were consciously Pushing a right-wing extremist agenda because it was keeping people on the platform and selling more ads.
1: Now, give uh, get, like, just to interrupt, but I'm just thinking about just we we'll get a little bit of a uh, bit more about about you making the film. Now, you being your first Yes, film, I'm sorry. Hey, I no, no. I, dad, I, I we really I wrote a thesis on how to regulate the internet, so to me, this is fascinating. So, oh no, okay. I'm, so this I'm is not, yeah, I You're talking my language, but I'm, I'm just thinking. I need to it. I hope get,
2: I'm not coming off like too much of a neophyte. If you're if you're an expert. No, no,
1: uh, at all. No, no I'm, not, I'm not. I wrote my, my paper was 10 years ago. So so um, right. it's it, now it feels like even in that 10 years... Um, the,
2: the, you wrote it before the iPhone, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: that, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the, the idea of the internet in, your hat, in the palm of your hand was the big game changer. But at the time I was doing it, it was like uh, the, the choice seemed to be would you have armies of people like they have, say, in China making sure their citizens don't do anything or would you as a kind of liberal social democratic economy like a USA or a UK well you're not going to bother because you're going to stifle innovation if you spend money on trying to stop people doing stuff you know that was kind of the level of debate at that point but anyway just thinking of it being your first movie and, and, and challenges therein so for you as the director what what were you what for you was your your kind of um what on the page looked to be the hardest to achieve and then what, what was it you managed to, to sort of pull out the pull out the hat, as it were, to make what you wanted come to life on the screen?
2: Um, the stuff that was hardest to achieve was hardest to achieve. Uh, but it was also the most rewarding thing to achieve. All the politics aside, you know, let's kind of want to leave that behind. I think that you know, the most exciting opportunity that the movie presented from a filmmaking standpoint or a formal standpoint, was the representation of the internet. Mm. And the fact that, you know, Issa and I both grew up with social media since like elementary school, early middle school. We were both on Neopets. And we've so rarely seen the internet represented halfway decently in a movie. This is a movie that is about the hyperstimulation of being online, mm. it's about, um, and, and the hyperstimulation of information. And it was really, really important that that was reflected formally in the film. Also, using a phone is fun and amazing and addictive. And when I see a phone come out in a movie, I'm like, oh boy, this is going to be boring. And so we came, we basically set a few rules for ourselves. We weren't going to do any kind of dumb, floaty animations. You know, all of the screens were going to be represented in a two dimensional space. And we were going to use the basic rule of, rules of montage of when Alice is having a digital experience, the audience is having the identical digital experience. What she is seeing and taking in is what the audience is seeing and taking in. And we'll do that kind of – we were really looking at the movie Unfriended okay. at the time and how successful the two-dimensional representation of the online space was. And we're like, what happens if we take Unfriended and we chop it up into shots? And, and then we use those shots in a, in a montage-like capacity. What, where is that gonna go? And that was a very experimental idea. And even when we were shooting, we were kind of, you know, we weren't really sure how it was gonna come out. Because we were only really shooting two-thirds of the film. There's 700 shots of screens in the movie. 50 minutes of the movie is basically a girl yelling at a television. <laughs> and we needed to make that look exciting and coherent. And so, There were kind of two major challenges that come out of that. One, in production, we had to actually build a live cam site. We had to build a cam site that we could code with all, like, preload all of the chats. And then Maddie would essentially act to it live. And it would, you know. And so Isabel, our producer, was essentially playing the site. She was the only person who who knew camming well enough, knew the script well enough to actually be able to, like, time everything out and, you know, would periodically change the chats or the gifs or something to kind of keep things fresh for Maddie. And, you know, it's also critical for the eye lines and for all the cut points. You know, she needs her eyes need to be shifting from looking at herself to looking at the chat feed, to looking at the, the, the ranking back to herself, looks at the webcam. You need all of those moments that are actually part of the performance so that you can, again, give the audience the digital experience when her attention is shifting. And so we built that site. Most of the screens in the film were actually shot live. So we actually shot all the Lola material, screen capped it, and then played it back on the television so that Maddie could actually watch herself in real time, which was very, very, very good for her performance, Um, down to the fact that the gunshot scene When when she shoots herself, we shot that the Lola side of that on Monday, and then I we I edited it with the editor Dan Garber while we were shooting, and we sent it to visual effects, had them put the gunshot in, popped it back in, and then after we kind of got into the scene a little bit, one time I was like, all right, we're going to go all the way through the gunshot now, and tell Maddie that we'd actually put the effect in, and she was really. Like she was really shaken and horrified by it. And her response in the film was her actual response to seeing it. And for the first time. Wow. And it was like very hard for her. And it it was one of these things that you do as a director that absolutely tests the bounds of trust that you have with an actor. You, You can't really play a lot of tricks like that without being an asshole. Uh, but it was the kind of thing that we had put a lot of thought into in terms of, you know, being like, this is going to be the best thing for the performance. And, and, and ultimately, you know, Maddie was very, very upset and then totally was like, well, I never would have gotten there on my own. But the thing is, is that we had done it it's just a locked off shot but we really wanted to do that shot where you know the camera spins around her it's the first reveal in the film so the way we actually did it is we we then shot the rest of the scene of her watching and then we went back to the, the that moment and got the scene where the camera spins around her um so so it's it's the two moments stitched together one where she's kind of redoing the, the thing that she found seeing it for the first time and then the actual genuine reaction um, you know and that, so makes that, so, that
1: makes so much sense then about why why when I yeah why when I was watching it it felt it felt like I was being her
2: yeah yeah <laughs> which yeah. is you
1: know which is kind of weird for a, for a man in his 40s um,
2: no and it's it's tough but it, it and it's it's again it's, it's it was something in the moment she was she got mad at me and mm. and I, I you know and later we kind of have talked through it a lot and she's like you know no you needed to do that like she's like I, I never you were you were 100% right to but it's a risk like that that you take with an actor because you can't always sometimes you have to build an environment that, that, that puts an actor in a, in a difficult situation to, to make a film real but you have to do that very 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 carefully and that was the only moment in the whole film that, that we did that but that's also the greatest moment of Loss of agency, and we wanted to kind of replicate that in, in, in a way for her, and 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 so um, the other major challenge of the movie. I mean, the challenge of shooting. The other major challenge of shooting was we didn't know what the pink room was going to look like, and when we got there, all of the shot lists and blocking that Kate and I had planned just totally fell apart. We didn't have time to rehearse the film. Um, Just because of scheduling and budget concerns, so we basically had to the first week that we were in the pink room We were just had to literally do it shot by shot and just kind of feel our way through it and respond to like How it actually was and on some level that was great because I think it it really helped The the way that we were capturing the camming be very organic But it was it definitely made the shoot way tougher Um, And uh, and then you know I will say, you know, the writing of the film, the fundraising of the film, the pre-production, the shooting, was all actually pretty smooth. Hmm. It has all of the stresses and difficulties of making a movie, but for our first film, it was very fast. We financed the film five months in the first draft.
1: Jeez, I'm very envious of you there. Blimey.
2: Then the edit took a full-time year and almost killed me, Isabel and Barber, the editor. It was brutal. because Why was why, made-
1: why the edit so brutal?
2: because there's absolutely no precedent for how to use the screens in an edit and there's an infinite number of choices because you don't have the pressure of don't have the pressure of production we had to make 700 new shots and you don't know how to frame something and you 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 start and you know how do you? Can, how can, I,
1: you, can, I, can I, I tell you what the, the biggest compliment I could probably pay you is? Then watching it now, as in seeing the end results of your kind of the, the brutal regime you put yourself through, is that it never entered my, my mind. It all felt like it was right.
2: That was the hope. I mean, but like actually getting that, um, actually getting to that place was really, really time consuming mm. because it had to feel like. It. But like, how long do you hold an emoji for? How long do like? How long do you hold that knife emoji for in the in the first scene to build tension and suspense? You have to think in the first scene of the movie. In five you know, and a half minutes. Honestly,
1: honestly, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Dan, but it's like when I was watching it, that wasn't Mike. The idea I, I just like I say you from almost from the get go because of the way you put me in the position of being Lola. Yeah, those kind of moments, looking at emojis. I'm just thinking I'm I'm seeing what she's seen, so therefore I'm. The beat of it is is as if I was sat in that room wondering what the fuck's going on too,
2: right? But how you have to imagine in that first five and a half minutes of the film, mm. we have to introduce you to this person, introduce you to this fantasy space, teach you how camming works without ever there is never a moment <laughs> in this film we explain through exposition how camming <laughs> works, yeah, true, and yeah. scare the shit out of you, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then say psych, yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. And it's very, very hard to do that when there's literally no precedent for it. You can't point at another movie that's wielded digital technology like this and say, well, that's how they did it. And I'll, I'll give you an example of, of the kind of language that we had to develop for ourselves here. It's basically like and, – and one of the places where you hit a snag and it costs you three days. And then you hit enough snags in those three days, so you add up. But, but, you know, for instance, when we cut into the webcam, I made a weird decision during prep. I decided the webcam would be four three with rounded corners because I thought it looked cool. And it reminded me of like old-timey film stuff.
1: Okay.
2: We brought that into a 16 by 9 aspect ratio. You can't cut to the webcam without cropping parts of it. And it actually created this really interesting thing where in order to basically say, we're never going to show more of the webcam than we would actually see on the real monitor, we had to bring in the sides of the website. Well, that actually became an extraordinary narrative tool Mm. because it allowed us to take what was essentially a single shot, just the webcam and turn it into an over the shoulder shot because you have, because you have a side of the So it creates a different kind of spatial relationship between, oh, Alice is now talking to the guys. Well, we didn't figure that out until we were like deep into post-production and doing all the final graphics work. So all of a sudden we realized, oh, holy shit, we have this tool we didn't even know we had in our toolbox to tell the story that we want, we have to deal with for the simple kind of, you know, believability of how we're wielding the webcam footage, but also we're tweaking whether or not there's bars on the right or bars on both sides or bars on the left and the scene's changing. Now the story's changing fuck and those were things that happened to us where again you know we're dealing with a thousand visual effects shots there's no like full-time visual effects supervisor dan the editor was doing the visual effects supervision himself I and mean, we had like a visual effects team but usually like there's the supervisor and then the editor and there's like good go-between and then there's also a full-time assistant editor and we had a part-time assistant editor and then dan was also the go-between essentially the post-soup and so we, you know, we would make these decisions, but because it was such a small film, they would really eat up a lot of time. And so it was that writ large for so many of these things where I'll give you another example. And then and then, I mean, also the climax of the film. And again, I won't get too into it to spoil yeah, things. Yeah, but yeah. the climax took about three months in itself to do. You um, see, it's, it's, it's 150 visual effects shots. It's tremendously taxing. There's a lot of. A lot of rotoscoping, um, and again, I didn't actually see the climax altogether until I was in a mix.
1: So this is this is about the challenge of the technical over what was written on the page. Was pretty straightforward, is what you're saying.
2: It it was, but it's a question of it's a question of like what are these shots of the screen. No, no, how... I, I
1: get you. I get you. You you were dealing. You, you kind of knew what it was, what it meant to say, but how it should look to make it a look good and b. Yes put together with what we know as traditional cinema.
2: And well, more... also making sense and being a tight 94-minute movie that is a doppelganger thriller that is already, that's already like a tough edit. Yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. build two different characters, three different characters, you know, and we're, we're building all of these, other kinds of relationships between Alice and her online persona and, and making sure that that's not only tracking from, you know, a narrative and a, mm. a character standpoint, but that it's tracking from a cinematic standpoint. Um, and well, look, well, look,
1: Daniel, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut you short because I, I know we could talk about this for, uh, oh yeah, for, sorry. For, no, no, don't be sorry at all. No, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap things up and say, thank you very much for, uh, for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. It's been it's it's it's, like, it's weird now, and I can't. I guess the second compliment I can play you now is I can't wait to go back to watch it again. To yeah. look, because honestly, I you, you completely got me in terms of I, I. It was so seamless to watch. I didn't think of it in the terms of cinematic invention, but yeah, I think you've, you you whether 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 you whether you set out to do it or not is irrelevant. The fact you found yourself having to do it is you've created a new journey now in terms of the language of the internet in a film world
2: Um, yeah that was the hope that was the hope well look congratulations Um, on the
1: film and people can see Cam on Netflix in the UK and I'm guessing other places if people listen to this outside the UK and uh, it just says to me thank you very much Daniel for coming on the podcast
2: thank you for having me the BritFlix podcast is
1: provided absolutely free if you want to help me get the podcast out to more people please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv.